Hello and welcome to the next episode of the Windhorse Publications podcast. My name is Dama Mega and I'm the publishing director at Windhorse Publications. So this is our sixth episode of the podcast and we started it kind of experimentally and it's turned out to be a really great success. We've had hundreds of new listeners and thank you for all of you who've made contact with me or us. Um, to say what you've enjoyed about the podcast or what you've liked about the podcast. And uh, we've now invested in a better microphone, so (laughs) hopefully the quality will be better from here on out. And I hope you enjoy the conversation that we're about to start. It's with Pranya Ketu, who's writing a book, or has written a book that we're about to publish um, in early November this year. And... um, We were interested in this book because so much of our lives these days are lived digitally, they're lived online, and um, we wanted to really engage with a Buddhist perspective on how we can become more aware, how we can find depth, how we can lead fulfilling lives online and deal with the nature of the medium and, and what the medium does to our minds. So um, I hope you really enjoy it. Hello, Praniketu. Hi, Dhammamega. Hello. So I'm speaking to Praniketu today, who is a new author for us. In fact, you have just been working on your first book. Tell us, tell us the title of the book. What's the book? So the title of the book is Cyberloka, A Buddhist Guide to Digital Life. Uh, what is a cyberloka? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's a, it's a made-up word. It's a word I, I've made up. Um, it's made up of two bits. So cyber, which I think you're prob- probably familiar with, it kind of means digital technology, um, anything yeah related to computers, the internet, etc. But then um, I've uh, I've put that next to the word loka. So loka is actually related to the word location in English, but it's a Sanskrit word. Uh, and it means something like a, a realm, um, a, particularly a realm of experience. So the, the concept of cyberloka is the realm of experience, which has arisen out of, well, our minds meeting digital technology. Mm. You um, and you are currently, while we're talking about lokas, <laughs> more more grounded ones. Where are you today? I am uh, in my study in Oxford. Yeah, so I live with my partner Ellie in uh, flats, quite close to a very pretty stream um, in the middle of Oxford. Mm. So, what made you write a book about the meeting of the mind and mm, the cyber world? Uh, it's a big question, really. I, I think largely it's come out of um, just the history of my life. It's a kind of memoir in a certain way. Um, because I, I'm, I'm a millennial, or what what, uh, what we call a millennial. I was born in 1985, and um, that makes me old enough to remember a time before the internet, or even before digital technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also makes me young enough that I'm reasonably fluent in it. You know, I certainly don't speak the language of digital technology with uh, as thick an accent as uh, a lot of older people. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think I've just been reflecting on. Um, how well how my generation has sort of straddled this threshold of, of moving from a yeah pre-internet age through to well the, the times we live in now and um 
I think I've grown a lot in relation to understanding how those technologies affect our minds, how they, they affect my life. Um, and yeah, I've sort of, I sort of think probably those reflections are helpful for other people to hear as well. So that, that's why it, it turned from a series of pieces just on my hard disk into something which, uh, well, it's, it's now a book, Cyberloka. Mm. Mm. So you've, your, your own life has developed in parallel to the digital revolution. Maybe that's an archaic term nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But obviously the thing that you're bringing to it is uh, the Dharma or a Buddhist practice. And it's very striking in reading the book um, how sort of strong and uh, central obviously Buddhism is to your understanding of this place. Maybe maybe separate from the book, you could just tell us a little bit about your kind of meeting with the connection of the Dharma. Um, yeah, so I started meditating when I was about 16, actually, so, so quite young, and uh, I, I, I learned it out of a book. So this was this is really old school, um, straight out of a book. Um, and yeah, I just really fell in love with meditation and started yeah, getting very much into it. I had a daily practice now since then. Um, and at the time I was, uh, well, my, my spiritual context was in the Church of England, uh, which was you know, very benign in, in lots of ways. I'm very grateful I had that upbringing, but it gave me no particular steer or uh, inspiration in terms of my meditation life. So, so I was definitely sort of approaching, well, I was seeking to approach people who knew more about meditation than I did. And at the time, those people were Buddhists. Mm. And so it's like, suddenly, oh, yeah, it's not just meditation. Buddhism isn't just about um, meditation experiences. It's um, this whole way of life and this whole way of um, kind of making sense in my life, which, uh, yeah, it just, it just made more and more sense, basically, as time went on. Hmm. Well, one of the things I was uh, interested in when you when I started reading the the manuscript that you sent is uh, you're a really good writer. You're a great okay. storyteller, and I know that you've been a teacher for some of the times. So you're very good at um, sort of mixing story and concept together. Um, so maybe for the listener who obviously won't have encountered this book by the time this podcast comes out, it's only being released in November. Mm. Um, there are sort of three main sections of the book and they go from like web 1.0 to web 2.0 in a way. Um, and so the first one is what you call hyper-availability. So I wonder if you'd like to actually just read a little introduction to that section and give people a bit of a sense of what's in this book. Sure. In Oxford, the city where I live, there's a bookshop called Blackwell's. On entering, it looks like a fairly ordinary independent bookshop. Keep going and you realise that the small front room extends deeper into the building. Go down the stairs and the shop opens up into a veritable cavern filled with books of all kinds. I vividly recall visiting Blackwell's at around the age of four the seemingly ever-expanding rooms of books conjuring up fantasies of an erudite Bond villain's underground lair. On returning to the shop again as a student in my late teens, what struck me instead was a tension, a tension born of the aspiring scholar in me. 
on the one hand was the availability of so much information, knowledge, and maybe even wisdom. On the other was the certainty that I would never be able to read it all, not even close. And more new books would arrive every day than I'd be able to read in a year. What dawned on me was that, in the face of this quantity of literature, I would need to choose what to read, to discern what was and what wasn't worth reading. And, actually, I didn't know where to start. <laughs> and those are just books, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That was just books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it just... Uh, when you're talking about yeah, physical books, it's like you can only put so many of those in a room, even a very big room like Blackwell's Bookshop in Oxford, which I highly recommend visiting uh, if you've got a lot of money and you're interested in books. Um, but yeah, the, with the internet, it's it's almost impossible to quantify how much is available. Uh, and, and, and even if we were yeah, to put a number on it, that number isn't even meaningful. You're talking about like Peter bites or whatever the the, num the sort of version is above Peter. It's mad. So you're writing this book, or you have been writing this book with um, people in mind. What are you trying to help people with? What are you trying to do in writing this book, other than uh, you know a memoir uh, of your own life of it? Yeah, well, I think the main thing is, um, I think I've learned a lot through reflecting on these these areas, uh, and. Um, in a way, the, the memoir aspect is, is just to kind of signpost how uh, we might, as, as readers, as, as kind of human beings faced with this technology, how we might interact with it and better use it. Um, so it's, it's like, um, yeah, the, the, I suppose the purpose of the book is to try to, to shine a light on an area which we ordinarily take for granted, even though, relatively speaking, it's sort of snuck up on us. Um, but yeah, we kind of take it for granted. It's something that we kind of do in the privacy of our own screens. Um, but yeah, we can do that well, or we can do that badly. And the, the book is, a, is attempting to, um, help us reflect in a way which will basically open it up for us, make it, um, more pleasant at the very least, and, and even a support to a meaningful life. It seems to concern you a lot that we don't live superficially and unawares uh, and a sort of underlived life. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I think probably that's what drew me to Buddhism uh, is is this this recognition that even that there are layers to life, you know, and that we can go. And I use this metaphor in the in the book that we can go kind of more deeply down into. Uh, reality and into the um, yeah this kind of structure of what human life is about, uh, and and that with that comes pleasure as well. You know, it's not just a sort of intellectual pursuit, but like there's it opens up a um, a whole kind of realm of experience which transcends the ordinary. And I just think, yeah, like uh, that's what I want. That's what I want my life to be about. And uh, if if there are ways that we can help each other to access that, fantastic. So how do we access that in the context of hyper-availability? Well, uh, yeah, so I, I mean, I go, I go through this in the book in terms of um, looking at what I call the three C's of, uh, of this, um, uh, yeah, of operating in this realm. So, so it's kind of looking at the, um, uh, the, the context uh, in which we are 
encountering these teachings, information, entertainment, whatever, sort of setting up the context so that we're receptive to it. Um, and then there's looking at content. So like what specifically are we um, are we uh, placing our minds upon, given that we can choose so much? How do we choose what is actually going to result in us growing or, or live, leading a more meaningful life? And then uh, there's uh, the third C is consideration, which is a, is a bit of a fudge in a certain way, you know, to, to, to use that term. But it's it's about how we reflect on it so so that we're not just going from one medium to another medium or from you know one video to another or, or whatever. But we're we're taking time to allow what it is to to make its impression on us. So, again, that, that metaphor of depth is is there, you know, the making of an impression is sort of deepening or allowing something to deepen into who we are. So it, it actually changes changes the fabric of our lives. Can you maybe um, give an example or a piece of advice or something that you, uh, a kind of conclusion that you come to in that reflection? Yeah. I mean, um, the, the main thing I think is trying to try to consume less uh, and, and try to be quite kind of picky about what I consume. So, so for example, if I'm going to listen to a piece of music, um, uh, what I'll do is I'll um, I'll set myself up. I might even like tidy my room. Sounds a bit weird to do, but like, I might tidy my room um, so that the, uh, the situation around me is more pleasant to, to, to be in, to look at. Um, then I might, you know, turn down the lights, get myself a cup of tea, uh, put on the headphones. Um, and then, uh, you know, really, uh, I, sometimes I might just clo close my eyes while I'm listening to the music and really take take it in. And then give myself a decent stretch afterwards just to, I don't know whether you sometimes get this if, you, if you're listening to a new piece of music where sometimes there's a bit of a, a break afterwards and then the themes from the music or, you know, a, a kind of the hook line sort of comes through and it, it sort of reinforces itself. So it's, it's like, I think we can do that with everything, you know, whether it's music, whether it's... Uh, you know, if you find something good on Netflix that you like and you want to give attention to, it's that kind of thing. Um, the, the sort of commentary we might read on current affairs as well, all, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and I think what, what I find as I'm doing that is uh, I have actually have less time to be giving to my media intake. My, my data diet sort of shrinks somewhat, but I get more out of it, um, which... Again, it sort of parallels that that metaphor of a, of a diet that you, you kind of want nourishing, wholesome stuff in in the right kind of quantities, not a, a deluge of you know rubbish. Um, but I think it's uh, yeah, it, it, as as I'm as I do that, and I'm not the best person at this at all. I've still got some way to go myself. But as I do that, I do find that I kind of go, oh yeah, actually, I, I don't really want to be spending my time on that now. Um, or if, if I'm reading news, I'll be reading more of a, a kind of considered piece on it rather than a, you know, quick update mm -hmm. thing. So sort of a quality over quantity and then taking enough time to actually digest and process and take it in. Yeah, that's my aspiration anyway. <laughs> that's, that's what I try to do. Um, and I think one of the major sort of... Um, reflections uh, coming out of this whole process of, of looking at my life in relation to digital technology is actually the odds are stacked against us. The odds are stacked against me anyway. And that there is this pull to consume more and more. So it does take some yeah, initiative and 
and kind of coming back and reapplication of my intention in order to um, to do that. But yeah, I think that's where we're at, isn't it? And so many things that we fear losing out on, don't we? Sort of not knowing or not getting the latest or um, not being able to be in conversations with the right people about things they're listening to or watching or... I know. <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> I think I think that's the downside, isn't it? The downside of that is that you end up becoming um, more proficient in fewer things, uh, ultimately. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's a that's a challenge for us all is to decide where that balance is to be struck. So I want to pass on to the second part of. Um, of your book, which is about super stimulation, is the overall title that you're doing. It's this great introduction. So, how about you read the first couple of paragraphs of that chapter? Walking along a dusty track in the heart of the Australian wilderness, you may encounter a pitiful sight a discarded stubby, a small beer bottle is attracting a lot of attention from the males of the dual beetle species. The stubby's appearance, smooth, brown, with regular dimples, is rather like that of the female dual beetle, only more so. In fact, so absorbed are the male dual beetles in their romantic overtures that they lose all perspective. Gone is their interest in the female dual beetles. Some of the males weaken through lack of food and are carried off by platoons of ants. Some remain in direct sunlight into the heat of the day, only to be baked alive. Observations of the male jewel beetle's odd behaviour earned Daryl Gwynn and David Rents an ignoble prize in 2011. Sad though it is to say, I feel a certain affinity with those male jewel beetles. So the um, the chapter is called Sex in the Cyberloka, and basically it's a whole section of the the whole middle section of the book is about dealing with pornography and the use of pornography. And I, as far as I am aware, it's the first explicitly Buddhist book I've ever uh, read that really tackles the issue of pornography. Um, and you know, it's also a personal story for you, isn't it? It's also about your own history of using pornography and the effects that's had. So maybe you could just say something about that and and uh, kind of what particular approach you're taking in writing about it. I think the, the main thing to say to begin with is just that uh, I, I went through a period in my early 20s where I really struggled with porn. Yeah, so it's my third year at university and uh, I was watching porn quite compulsively. And yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty grim time. Um, I, I found it well. The, the way I describe it is it, I found it it dulled even or even deadened my my senses um, because because of the nature of this kind of uh, super stimulation. Because yeah, that's that's one of the things that uh, well, that's sort of one way in is to to think of it in terms of super stimulation. A bit like um, a bit like fast food in a way. Uh, it um, it sort of taps into basic evolutionary uh, or biological um say kind of circuitry and uh f- you know fe- feeds that circuitry more and more of what it wants and I, yeah that's that was basically where i ended up with with porn was just uh, overstimulated um by something which 
yeah, I found arousing and I found um, uh, sort of fascinating in a certain way. But then it sort of took on a life of its own, which then cast quite a shadow over over the, the rest of what I was doing, most notably trying to finish my degree. It's quite a thing to, I mean, obviously, pornography and sex more generally is so often considered a sort of private, well, private act out of the public eye and and also hard to speak about, hard to write about. Yeah, uh, I mean, that was that was my main experience. So so the the, the story was I, I had this this period while I was a student and then um, I was actually quite lucky because I, I moved back into university accommodation uh, and the uh, the guy who ran the, the the university network was so uh, so strict. It was just it wasn't going to be possible for me to get away with watching internet porn anymore. So um, that more or less just sort of cut it off completely. And then I went for a period of about um, or more than ten years, yeah, more more than a decade of of not using it at all and making quite a um, quite a sort of principled uh, ethical stand of not watching pornography. And um, yeah, but then, then I sort of after that that decade or so, I started encountering other people who were talking about it, uh, particularly other young men, uh, and realizing that oh, you know, there was um, there was a sort of contempt actually I had towards them, um, and that was that was pointing in the direction of I hadn't quite worked this out or I hadn't quite you know uh, fully dealt with this. You know, I thought I'd uh, I thought sort of abstinence was enough, but actually. Um, on a deeper level, I hadn't really addressed it. So, so that's what prompted me to to write about it. I had to think, okay, well, now I've I've had these ten years, actually, really good ten years of lots of meditation, going on retreats, learning more about Buddhism. Uh, what can I bring to bear from this um, this new wisdom I have onto um, the experience I had then? And yeah, that that was where it came from. I mean, obviously, there's so many ways to talk about or analyse porn, what goes on in porn, its production, its ethics, you know, all of that. Um, and and you draw on, a, you know, in all of these chapters, actually, you're sort of taking the Dharma and choosing some sections that you think are a fruitful lens or a way of looking at this. And in this one, you look at the six realms, which I found interesting because it's not a, it's very much not a black and white analysis i mean you do you do come out to say that in most instances you think that most porn is sort of probably most harm, mostly harmful and yet um and yet loads of people are using it and it's a big feature of our lives so how can we address that and you use this this um six realms maybe some people don't know haven't encountered the six realms or certainly haven't encountered it like this so how do you use that uh, I mean, without going into all of the the details of the realms, um, the 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 teaching that they give is of different ways of relating to pleasure or possible sources of pleasure. And I'm not saying they're necessarily um, exhaustive in the different approaches they take, but you know, so for example, one way of relating to pleasure is um, to think, uh, oh yeah, I, I've got to own something or I've got to uh, yeah possess something in order to enjoy it. Um, and, and sometimes actually the possession of something uh, gets in the way of us trying to enjoy it. Um, or an, another way of relating to pleasure might be um, of like clinging to it with a, uh, with almost a kind of uh, a, like a neurotic zeal. Like, like we, want, we want the pleasure to, to do for us um, what actually only 
um, kind of deeper emotional satisfaction can do for us. And and so the the, the wheel of life, or these the six realms in the wheel of life, um, point in a more symbolic or colourful way to these different attitudes that we can take in relation to pleasure. Um, and what I say is, I think it's possible to approach porn from all of them. Um, some of them uh, are more functional or, or more dysfunctional than others. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I think um, I think the, the main thing really is that. Uh, it, the the analysis I'm bringing is looking from the perspective of uh, somebody who's using it, somebody who's watching it, and um, how they might bring greater clarity to what's going on for them while they're watching it, or in the run up to, or afterwards, or whatever. Yeah. And and what do you think people can be aware of? Well, I, I think the thing about that framework of the six realms is that it, it gives people. Um, like an easy pointer so so i don't know suppose you're uh, you're um you're thinking you're going to watch porn well like can you just do a, a quick like where am i on this wheel of life here <laughs> you know just placing your finger on okay where's this coming from am i just bored here uh or you know am i am i looking for a kind of a bit of energy or a bit of stimulation or um yeah, I don't know. There, there are other Am options. Am I lonely? Well. Am I lonely? Yeah, tired. Yeah, uh, all those kind of things. So, so it's like, it, I think with a lot of these things, it's bringing even just a little bit more awareness incrementally in over time, um, and that that will build. That will build to a position where we're encountering um, uh, that desire or that yeah that interest uh, earlier. And then before it's becoming more of a seemingly insurmountable thing. One of the things in your book is that, and maybe this goes back to the idea of the cyber loka itself, is, and, and certainly a kind of classic Buddhist analysis, isn't it? There's a, a subjective and an objective dimension to all experience. And often with um, analyses of media, the, the emphasis is so much on the objective dimension. Um, so say with hyperstimulation, it might be about, oh, I don't know, the companies that are running um, uh, these kind of data availability or algorithms or things things like this, and that not much attention is given to the subjective dimension. Um, and you and and in all of the sections of the book, you do something that's in a way prioritizing the subjective dimension in the sense of become more aware, understand your own motivation, know where your freedom lies, what's the gap in your relationship to these kinds of technology or images, for example. Um, but you certainly don't bypass uh, a look at how the objective factors are attempting to, you know, directly relate to the mind, um, your, your mind. Um, through their technologies, through the ways it works. Um, and I did find the section on pornography that you're doing very interesting. You're saying, well, there's better and worse porn. How do we know that? And some of it is on what, what effect will it have on you, but also some of it's around the ethics of um, of the industry, uh, for example. And, and there's better and worse pleasure. So I wonder if you can remember off the top of your head how you end... Uh, how you end the um, that section on pornography, where you talk about um, the sort of two ethics, if you like. Yeah, 
Well, what it boils down to is, um, yeah, first of all, there are better kinds of porn. Uh, and I think that that has become that's become a really important point when it comes to talking about pornography more generally. Um, so I sometimes uh, compare uh, porn with with fast food. You know, so there's almost like a spectrum of fast food, and see see whether this works for your tummy maker. But like at one end of the spectrum, you've got you know your kind of vegan, organic, locally sourced deli. Yeah, and then at the other end you've got the kind of out of town industrial estate kebab van, mm. right? And and pornography pretty much sort of spans a similar sort of spectrum. Um, the the what I call the mainstream industrial variety, uh, which I find pretty repulsive if I'm completely honest. Uh, it falls around kind of kebab kid, Burger King kind of um, territory on the spectrum. But um, yeah, I mean that's not to say that there aren't people who. There aren't pornographers who critique that, uh, and and who are seeking to even to use pornography as a as a positive educational device. Uh, and I think that's something that can often get lost in the conversations around porn. So that, that's that's the first thing is that there, there are better kinds of porn. Um, but then uh, this, the second point is um, there are better kinds of sex than porn. Uh, at least that's my contention. <laughs> I, I, in a way, it's you know, leave it to the reader to, uh, yeah, like an exercise to the reader, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I, at least in my own experience, um, you know, solo sex, masturbation, um, partner sex is is just better basically when I'm not using porn, not watching porn. Um, and then thirdly, uh, there's better kinds of pleasure than sex. Which I think probably is the most controversial statement in the whole book. Uh, I think we we glorify sex in in uh, at least in British culture and uh, like so so that the expectation of it far exceeds the the reality. And um, what the Buddha says is look, there's loads better pleasure out there. Um, it's it's uh, more subtle, but it's uh, it's longer lasting. It's it's more deeply pleasurable. Um, and it's it's the pleasure that comes from freeing one's mind. So uh, so yeah, that's that's how I, I broach the, uh, the, the 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 I would say the scope of what I'm talking about in that chapter. Yeah. Who are you hoping this chapter will help? Really, I've, I've probably got two different people in mind. So so the first uh, lot of people um, would be uh, well, people like myself. You know, people who um, have a, a, a well. I was thinking particularly younger men who have a spiritual bent, and they want to um, they want to somehow bring um, their pornography use into uh, a Buddhist context. So it's not something that they feel like they have to um, uh, partition off. Um, I think that was that was one of the things that was most difficult for me was that I had a, a kind of spiritual self that wasn't willing to acknowledge. Uh, you know my more biological self um so i think yeah there's there's something about be, bringing uh, an awareness to and a, a kind of a support to um other guys who might have been in a similar position to me or perhaps use porn more casually but um are looking to kind of go beyond that as well uh but then i, I think there's there's a there's a wider audience as well which is um the uh the kind of buddhist um who I, I sort of imagine as being a bit older and um, not really knowing very much about pornography. 
uh, and perhaps even not wanting to talk about it or feeling uncomfortable talking about it. And yeah, so so those basically fleshing out the terrain, so to speak, for those older uh, Buddhists uh, or those older older people, I suppose, who who perhaps don't have an idea of what pornography is. So so that when they do find themselves in conversations with people who are talking about pornography, they've got um, uh, they've just got more knowledge to draw on. You know, you don't have to watch loads of porn in order to get a sense of it. And I hope that chapter gives gives enough so that reflective people can get a sense. All right, this is this is the the terrain. This is this is what what's going on here. So you're writing specifically about pornography, but in a way, super stimulation comes in loads of different forms, doesn't it? You know, we can be very addictive, whether in terms of uh, gaming, you know, anywhere where you've got something that is a strong intensifier done digitally, usually done on your own. Um, that can become pulse, compulsive and, um, yeah, that is responding to some mix of both pleasure and, and trying to ameliorate some kind of dukkha or seek connection or something. So although the, the, the chapter itself is about pornography, the analysis is, is really much wider than that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's really the central question is um, how do we distinguish between stimulation and pleasure? Uh, and and you know the, the issue for you or for other people might not be pornography, but it might be um, you know the, the sort of bright, colourful, attractive things that you get on your smartphone, or it might be internet dating, or it might be you know there's so you know dating apps, or there might be so many things where we're going to something for uh, a sort of hedonic hit. Um, and I think that analysis, if you, if you can sort of step back from the question of porn and apply the analysis of the six realms and then, then what I say about you know, the ethics of restraint and ethics of altruism, I think uh, it applies. Yeah, it just requires a bit of creativity from the point of view of the reader there. Yeah. So people might be thinking that this is an incredibly long book, a big book, but it's not actually. You're just quite pithy. <laughs> so, um, but not only do you deal with those two sections on um, hyperavailability and superstimulation, but you also move on to, let's say, the outbreath of the cyberloka. In other words, publishing. Uh, one's own content through social media and other platforms. And uh, you've written this fantastic apocryphal sutta. Uh, so I wonder if you'd be willing to read the first part of the Facebook sutta. Yeah. Okay. Thus have I heard. At one time, the Blessed One was staying in the Kosalan country, along with a Twitter following of 500 million. Upon emerging from meditation, the Blessed One dressed himself in his robes and wandered among the Wi-Fi hotspots for his daily news feed. On his way back, while checking the Bhikkhu Sangha Facebook group and reading an exchange between two monks from Kosambi, a post occurred to him never posted before. This is Cyber Dukkha. This is the origin of Cyber Dukkha. This is the cessation of Cyber Dukkha. This is the path leading to the cessation of cyber dukkha. (laughs) 
I mean, it's 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 so funny, isn't it? It's so great and so funny and so uh, appropriately modelled on sitters to um, mm. to make sense. Of course, you made it up. <laughs> yes, I did. Just to be clear, yeah. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> um, but you also use this uh, the model of um, the four noble truths or the four ennobling truths. You know, this is the the origin of cyber dukkha, and this is the cessation of cyber. And this is the path leading to the cessation of cyber dukkha. Um, and uh, there's so much in this. Uh, you talk about, um, say, right motivation, right restraint, right medium, right cognition, how to deal around uh, a right critique. <laughs> you know, so so actually, you 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 lay out this sort of eightfold. I don't actually know if it is, is it eightfold. You it's eightfold. Oh yeah, of course, it's going to be eightfold. Yeah. eightfold. yeah, I hadn't counted it, but of course it is. <laughs> so you you lay out the uh, the eightfold path with it, um, and you know, it's far too much for us to go into in detail in the interview now. But it it really does give uh, a very cogent analysis. Um, again, of that interactive between interaction between the subjective and the objective dimension of the encounter of social media and conversations on social media. Maybe instead of going into the content of it, what was your concern in writing this? In addition to humour, um, well, so it sprang out of watching um, or yeah, reading what uh, Buddhist friends of mine were posting online. And, and I'm not talking about things like uh, kittens, skateboarding, you know, videos, those kind of things, which are, which are, you know, relatively benign. But it was particularly around a time when there was quite a lot of discussion within the Tree Ratna Buddhist order that we're, we're part of, we're members of. Uh, and quite a lot of heated discussion, actually, I think it's fair, fair to say. And what what I felt I could see happening was that, um, pe people were reading other people's views and then critiquing those views uh, on the basis of, well, a, quite a superficial reading of them. Uh, and the, the people whose views were being critiqued took umbrage and, and then critiqued again. And so, so it, it got progressively more and more heated and uh, quite acrimonious, I might even say. Um, and I was sort of sitting on the, the sidelines watching this and thinking it really doesn't have to be like this. Uh, it, I was finding it really painful, actually, to, to see. Um, and part of me wanted to kind of wade in and go, look, guys, don't, just don't do it like this. Um, but I felt actually pr probably rightly that were I to have done that, that would have been just received as more criticism and not um, actually not moved anything forward. So um, so I, I suppose one of the things I'm, I was conscious of during that period was that uh, like being a Buddhist is no um, inoculation against disharmony uh, online, particularly through text-based media. Uh, and it got me thinking, well, okay, then how do we do this in a way which um, we it's possible for us to engage in robust exchange with one another, but to do it harmoniously? Um, I, think dis I think disagreement is inevitable, but it's possible to disagree in ways which show an imagination of the people uh, towards the people we're disagreeing with uh, and what i try to show in in that chapter is how, how we build up to a point where it's possible for us to 
critique one another harmoniously. Mm. It's quite an aspiration, isn't it? Given, given as you say, the um, well, the nature of the medium, and and what does and doesn't get communicated in in that medium. So, actually, one of the things you end up saying is uh, is something about fidelity, isn't it? Not not fidelity in the porn chapter, but fidelity in the <laughs> social media chapter. What do you, what do you mean by fidelity in this case? Well, I, I'm I'm sort of drawing from the work of um, uh, well, there's, there's this whole kind of idea in uh, evolutionary anthropology of the social brain hypothesis, and um, so the scholars in that area have uh, have done research. It's quite old research now into uh, the way that different media are um, uh, yeah uh, are are received by people. So they even set up effectively a, a kind of hierarchy of uh, from lower to higher fidelity. So and what I mean by fidelity there is is like how faithfully the medium communicates what the person wants to say. Um, and so, yeah, when it's, uh, when it's video, real time, or even like, well, face to face is the highest fidelity medium, but certainly video, real time, uh, audio, where you can pick up the tone of voice, the expression of the person, um, it's it's it sort of broadens the imagination compared to 160 characters. Uh, I mean, we all kind of know that, but um, and it's it, and the other thing is, it's possible to communicate something in 160 characters. You've just got to use that medium really skillfully. I think for now we're probably just going to leave it there as a as a bit of a. Um... Well, an invitation to engage with these questions. I mean, w one of the things I'm hoping as the publisher of this book is that people obviously will find it useful. But the book has a series of reflections, examples. Some of them are your examples and pe people's experience might be quite different. But there are modes of engaging in reflection about the effect uh, you know, about the praticcia samutpada, if you like, or, or the condition co-production that arises in this loka, in this field, between the mental states that we bring to them and the nature of the technologies that we're engaging with. So sort of my hope is that this is a useful book, whether you agree or don't agree or find your conclusions correct, um, to, to be reflecting on our own lives in this realm which of course are ubiquitous you know it's it's everywhere we're, we're swimming in this at the moment and paying attention to that seriously i wonder if there's anything that you want to say to people who might uh, have their curiosity piqued and might be interested in the book is there anything else that you'd like to say really i just want to react uh, just echo what you said there dhamma mega about um the the book not actually stating conclusions on any of this and in a way how could i uh it, we're talking about something which is changing so rapidly um, but what i'd really love is for there to be um, a community of people who are taking uh, these reflections seriously uh, who, you know who are kind of looking at how they're bringing their motivations to uh, to what they're writing how they're uh, interacting with their sources of pleasure how how they're kind of getting wisdom from whatever it is they're interacting with. Uh, I think those are like vital questions for us to be uh, grappling with. And well, my, my offering really is to participate in that conversation uh, and to yeah, inspire others to participate in it as well. 
there's one one place where you say sometimes getting a handle on all of this is that make could make the difference between living a good life and scrolling yourself into old age sickness and death without. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might be paraphrasing slightly. So yeah, slightly, but yeah, it's it's that kind of thing. Yeah, like yeah, because we're going to be spending so long uh, in if digital technology continues in the way it is, so much of our lives is going to be mediated by it. If we don't get a handle on it, yeah. How, how much of our life is going to be lost in a way through that. Well, thank you, Prime UK2. Congratulations on the book. Very exciting. And uh, I'm sure we'll hear, hear a lot more about it and from you from November onwards when it gets launched. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dhammavega. Wintour's Publications is part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.